0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 15 Real Estate Booms and Busts Real estate narratives, stories about the often tantalizing increase in the value of land, housing, locations, and homes, are among the most prominent economic narratives. A strong example of their influence was the talk leading up to the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, which disrupted economies all over the world. The 2007 to 2009 Great Recession was fueled by stories communicating inflated ideas of the value of housing. Real estate narratives have a long history. From ancient times through the Industrial Revolution, real estate talk centered on the price of farms. In modern times, attention shifted first to stories about empty city property suitable for building homes, then to actual homes in metropolitan areas. These shifts are just mutations of a perennial narrative about the scarcity of land and its value. We might think that the real estate boom and bust narratives would be part of the same constellation of panic or confidence narratives that we described in chapter 10. But real estate confidence is very different from confidence in the state of the economy because people tend to view the two as very different things. Real estate is regarded as a personal asset, which one might have useful opinions about while the economy is seen as the product of myriad forces. As this chapter reveals, however, real estate is also a socially informed asset, with its value depending on how people compare themselves to their neighbors and beyond. Speculation and land bubbles For much of history before the 20th century, popular narratives celebrated land speculation, either of farmland or of vacant city lots in the burgeoning or promising cities, rather than home speculation or stock speculation. The following land speculators' narrative, full of human interest, was written in 1840 after the collapse of a U.S. land bubble that had started in 1837. Quote, His father left him a fine farm free from encumbrance, but speculation became rife, and fortunes were made in a twinkling, And D, character name, fancied one thing could be done as well as another. He sold his farm and bought wild land in the prairies and corner lots with in lithographed cities, and began to dream of wealth worthy of golden eind. Work he could not; it had suddenly become degrading. Who could think of tilling or being contented with a hundred acres of land when thousands of acres in the broad west? were waiting for occupants or owners. D, our character, was not the man to do it, and he operated to the extent of his means. At last, the land bubble broke. Those lithographed cities were discovered to be mere bogs, and prairie farms, although the basis of exhaustless wealth, were worthless unless rendered productive by labor." End quote. Here we see a perennial narrative of a foolish speculator buying unseen land in a bog, a narrative reconstructed in the 1920s Florida land bubble, where a swamp replaced a bog. The Florida land boom of the 1920s. There appears to have been little talk of single-family family homes as speculative investments until the second half of the 20th century, A ProQuest news and newspaper search for home price reveals virtually no reference to the term in a speculative context until then. In fact, the phrase home price had a different meaning in past centuries as in the home price of wheat, meaning the price of wheat in the domestic market as opposed to a foreign market. When the phrase home price with this modern meaning was mentioned, it typically appeared in a story about a rich person spending a lot on a home as a sign of wealth, but with no sense that the home was appreciating in value. For example, an 1889 article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch exclaimed, quote, Senator Sawyer who has for years lived in the house which Jefferson Davis occupied when he was here in Washington, has stopped paying rent and has built a magnificent brown stone mansion within a stone's throw of DuPont Circle. It is worth at least 80000 and Sawyer's millions will keep it in fine style. There are fine houses all around it, end quote. There is a reference to value as if it is unchanging, but no sense that the senator might be making a speculative investment. A ProQuest News and Newspaper's search for price per acre shows a very different pattern. The phrase peaked at the beginning of the 20th century when it tended to refer to farmland as a speculative investment. The Florida land boom of the mid-1920s gets many hits, but the phrase home price almost never appears in those articles. During that widely discussed boom, an associated narrative emphasized that the proliferation of motor cars was making Florida land more easily accessible to northerners looking for a winter home. Given the rise of the automobile, it is not surprising that the allegedly beautiful sites that were selling out so fast were empty lots for building new homes. However, by 1926, The Florida land boom had become a widely covered scandal, reported nationally. Newspapers printed stories that promoters were selling underdeveloped land divided into home-sized parcels, sight unseen, to northerners who would never in their lifetimes see a town built near their isolated homes. These stories rendered such sales of undeveloped land disreputable. Land has always been only a small part of a home's value. One estimate, by Morris Davis and Jonathan Heathcote, suggests that the land's value averaged only 36% of the home's total value from 1976 to 2006. We do not seem to have data on the percentage of land value in home value for earlier years, except in assessments for property tax, but presumably when the U.S. population was more rural, the percentage was even lower. In contrast to the Florida narrative, with its emphasis on land, investments in home historically have been viewed as investments in structures that depreciate through weather and use, that require constant maintenance, and that go out of style and get torn down eventually. We can understand why land itself, with no structure on it, at least during the Florida boom, seemed a more exciting investment. Traditionally, prices of new homes were widely thought to be dominated by construction costs. In fact, it used to be a conventional wisdom that home prices closely tracked construction costs. A 1956 National Bureau of Economic Research study noted some short-term movements in U.S. home prices not explained by construction costs between 1890 and 1934, but it concluded, quote, with regard to long-term movements, however, the construction cost index conforms closely at the labor at the price index corrected for depreciation. For long-term analysis, the margin of error involved in using the cost index as an approximation of a price index cannot be great." End quote. Because their construction cost index included only the prices of wages and materials but not the price of the land, the NBER analysts were viewing investments in homes as nothing more than holdings of depreciating structures, wearing out through time, intending to go out of fashion. With such a narrative, housing bubbles had little chance of getting started. Enter news, numbers, and narratives. Newspapers eventually discovered that readers were interested in stories about home prices in congested inner cities where the price of land is more connected with home prices because land is much more expensive there. These stories may have gained contagion, leading people to think that their properties, far from city centers, shared same of the same speculative trend to higher prices. Another factor leading to contagion was the development of home price indexes for existing homes. The first mention of median prices of existing homes in ProQuest News and newspapers appeared in 1957 in an Associated Press story referring to a U.S. Senate Housing Subcommittee report, which concluded that low-income families were being priced out of the housing market partly because of the increased price of land. Newspapers began publishing the National Association of Realtors' Median Price of Existing Homes in 1974. The Case-Shiller Home Price Index, originally created by Carl Case and myself, began to appear in 1991. These indexes allowed news media to regularly announce large movements, thereby lending concreteness to stories about movements in home prices. Before the advent of statistical measures of home prices, it was relatively hard for the news media to come up with regular stories about speculative movements in that market. Before stock price indexes became popular in the 1930s, writers for the news media were able to quote numbers illustrating big movements in the stock market, usually by quoting the one-day change in a few major stocks, which tended to move in the same direction on big move days. They lost no opportunity to write such stories. But it is not easy to write about regular news in home prices. A house is almost never resold in just one day. Rather, most home sales occur over long periods of time, years, or even decades. Even changes in the medium home price month to month were not newsworthy because one-month changes could be erratic. When different kinds of houses sold from one month to the next. The repeat sales that Carl Case and I first started publishing in 1991 marked the beginning of a new era, one in which month-to-month changes in aggregate home prices could be inferred from highly disparate houses, each of which sells very infrequently. The indexes led to a futures market for a single-family home's at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange that has the potential to reveal day-to-day changes in home prices, though activity on that market mostly dried up after the 2007-2009 to 2009 world financial crisis. A common assumption in accounts of speculative bubbles in stock and housing markets has been that investors are extrapolating recently successful investment performance, expecting the price increases to continue, and thereby eagerly forcing prices up even higher. This process repeats again and again in what may be called a vicious circle or a feedback loop. However, narratives matter as well. If we listen to the narratives at such times, investors may seem a lot less calculating than they sometimes appear. Instead, the price increase appears to be driven less by future expectations than by the proliferation of stories and talk that draw attention to the asset that is booming, thereby fueling the bubble. House Lust in Social Comparison It is vital to listen to what people are saying during a rapid expansion of prices to understand just what is animating them. In his 2007 book, House Lust, America's Obsession with Our Homes, Daniel McGinn sees psychological factors at work. The book was published at the beginning of the world financial crisis of 2007-2009, right on the heels of the most rapid increase in house prices during the record-setting U.S. national home price boom of 1997 to 2006. McGinn chose the title House Lust because he believed that the emotions displayed in conversations during the boom market just before the Great Recession reflected a true lust. A lust for status and maybe power that sometimes drives people to ruinous actions. During this lustful period in U.S. history, people relished stories of higher and higher home prices and of the people who benefited from them a bit too much to be rational. McGinn dis- defines and explains some impulses and motives that are not in most economists' vo- vocabulary. He describes the high five effect which is the vicarious thrill of cheering on a winner. Most people enjoy seeing their own recent success with their real estate investments. And, so long as they are invested and not envious, they enjoy their friends' and neighbors' successes too. They are happy to share in their neighbors' victories, giving each other high fives, the celebratory gesture that athletes give to each other after a big win, in a moment of seeming joy. McGinn also describes an our house is our retirement plan effect. The story that a house is necessary necessary to successful living because it is a recognizable store of value. The narrative in the recent boom fueled house prices by implying the dictum that one should stretch or reach to buy a house. Buy the biggest house you can afford, because you will be glad that you did so when the house's value goes even higher. McGinn also describes an it's so easy to peek in the window effect caused by the internet and social media that allows housing voyeurs to get information about neighbors and celebrities' home specs and prices as never before. McGinn observed, quote, In many backyards, if you judged the nation's interests by its backyard barbecue conversation, settings where subjects like war, death, and politics are risky conversational gambits, a lot of people find homes to be more compelling than any geopolitical struggle, end quote. The internet adds force to the narrative in today's housing market. People are naturally curious about the amount of money that other peoples make in their jobs, but they can't find such information on the internet, except in the case of government jobs, and it is considered vulgar to ask. However, McGinn notes, Websites such as Zillow and Trulia, both founded in 2006, allow you to find out right away, for free, what anyone's home is worth. Social psychologist Leon Festinger described a social comparison process as a human universal. People everywhere compare themselves with others of a similar social rank, paying much less attention to those who are either far above them or far below them on the social ladder. They want a big house so that they can look like a member of the successful crowd that they see regularly. They stretch when they pick the size of their house because they know the narrative that others are stretching. McGinn's You Are Where You Live effect confirms the power of of the real estate comparison narrative. As of the early 2000s, when the housing boom was at its peak, there was no other comparable success measure that one could just look up on the internet. The History of Home Ownership Promotion In another element of the real estate narrative, history shows a succession of advertising promotions for home ownership itself, not just for the sale of individual properties. In the U.S., these promotions begin with the Own Your Own Home campaign, launched by real estate agent Hill Ferguson in 1914 under the auspices of the National Association of Real Estate Boards precursor to the National Association of Realtors today. The Own Your Own Home campaign, like the savings and loan association movement that preceded it in the United States, and the even earlier building society movement in the United Kingdom and Europe, was an attempt to help people build up some savings. The Own Your Own Home campaign set out to change the widespread presumptions that borrowing is disreputable or dangerous that people should never go into debt, and that they should accumulate savings to buy a home with an all-cash offer. In a 1919 display ad placed in numerous newspapers, the campaign stated, quote, Don't let the idea of a mortgage scare you. Some people think that they are a disgrace. But if they're, big enough, if they're good enough for the biggest corporations and the U.S. government, then they needn't frighten you, end quote. Note that the purchase of a home was not cast as part of the more modern concept of saving for retirement. A ProQuest News and Newspapers search reveals that retirement was virtually never mentioned in advertisements for homes until the 1920s, and the idea did not take off until the 1940s. In the earliest part of the 20th century, people didn't think of saving for retirement, as they, in many cases, did not think that they would live long enough to spend much time in retirement. Rather, savings were put aside as a safety measure against illness or other misfortune. The savings bank movement and the own-your-own-home movement were a moderate success. The home ownership rate rose, and even today, low-income people in the U.S. and other advanced countries tend to have some savings, mostly in the form of home equity. Next came the Better Homes in America movement, launched in 1922 by Marie Melanie, the editor of a women's magazine, The Delineator. Real estate groups continued to pay for advertisements advocating home ownership throughout the rest of the 20th century. In the years leading up to the 2007-2009 world financial crisis, the National Association of Realtors placed numerous ads including the words, now is a good time to buy or sell a home. After the financial crisis, it launched a new campaign Home Ownership Matters. These campaigns emphasized that homeowners tend to be successful and patriotic people. The campaigns not only helped support patriotic ideals, but also created a clearer rationale for buying a home, thus, enhancing the narrative. The desire to impress the neighbors is part of the social fabric, but it comes with a psychic cost. Marketing people often find themselves in the position of trying to help people get past their guilt about showing off, which may involve buying land or ostentatious houses. Before the Great Depression, many ads touted purchasing undeveloped land as investments. For example, a large newspaper ad from 1900 with the headline, A Princely Spot is Orangewood, offered five-acre plots near Phoenix, Arizona, that could be used either to build a home or to plant an orange grove. The ad featured recent auction prices of oranges from the region, as well as text about how fashionable the area was. In response to complaints about such marketing, the individual states of the U.S., put into place over the period of 1911 to 1933 a series of blue-sky laws, prohibiting the selling of speculative schemes which have no more basis than so many feet of blue-sky. Mr. Ponzi and his other scheme In 1926, Charles Ponzi, who was said to have invented the Ponzi scheme in 1920, was released from jail. Also called a circulation scheme, a Ponzi scheme is a fraudulent investment fund that pays off early investors with money raised from later investors, creating a false impression of profits to lure yet more victims. Soon thereafter, Ponzi went back to jail for violating Florida's Blue Sky Law. During the Florida land boom, he began selling small parcels of Florida land to investors, without disclosing that the land was underwater, in a swamp. Ponzi's name and the story of unwitting investors buying land in a swamp went viral with his circulation scheme, and it remains famous even today. But his name is not so attached to the swamp narrative as it is to the Ponzi scheme narrative. In reaction to such abuses, the U.S. imposed stronger laws on the subdivision of land for sale to small investors. State laws defined land sales as security sales, even if the sale was a simple transfer of property, thus making the sale subject to securities regulation. In addition, regulation of the sale of land was reinforced to prevent such abuses. As a result of the scandals in the ensuing legislation, people began to think that investing in undeveloped land based on prospective future use was irresponsible and disresputable disreputable, that land needed to generate real income before reputable brokers could sell it. Thus, advertising turned to offering investments in going businesses and owner-occupied homes, which continued to feed the real estate narrative. As people continued to think of home purchases as investments in land rather than reproducible and depreciating structures, the potential for home price bubbles persisted. At the same time, real estate investment remained the simplest of speculative investments. Most people never find the time to get involved in a risky specialized investment, but many people own a home at some point in their lives, and so they typically do not have to work hard to learn about real estate as a speculative investment. City, land, and stories. Changing narratives do not explain some major swings in home prices afflicting certain cities and sparing others. There is evidence that booms in some cities but not others can be explained merely in terms of supply constraints. For example, undeveloped land available for building is more available in some cities than in others, and there could be a time when a city that once had plenty of land for building finds that its land has been exhausted. When a city's population is expanding, even if the city is not particularly attractive and has no particularly favorable narratives, there will be some people who want to move there. For example, there are always potential immigrants, often from poor or unstable countries, seeking a foothold in advanced countries and they may choose cities based on arbitrary factors, such as proximity to their home country or the existence of a subpopulation speaking their language in the destination city. If land is readily available for purchase there, new houses will be built, and the immigrants' demand for housing may have minimal impact on prices. But... If such land has run out, these immigrants will have to outbid others for existing homes, and home prices will rise. In that case, only the wealthier buyers will be able to live in that city. People who are already living in the city but have no special interest in it have an incentive to sell their houses and take the proceeds to another, more affordable house in another city. The supply constraint thus results in higher prices, and a wealthier population in that city. Supply constraints also help to explain the differences in home prices across cities and throughout time. Economist Albert Size used satellite data to construct estimates of the amount of land available around major U.S. cities. He found that cities that are, that are boxed in by bodies of water or steeply sloped terrain, which is less suitable for building, tend to have higher home prices. That's no surprise. There is also a tendency for people who already own homes in a city to try to block further construction of homes, particularly of affordable housing. They have an economic incentive to do so, for limited housing supply boosts home prices. The effects of such an incentive may differ across cities. But beyond such conventional economic explanations, there is also evidence that changing narratives play a role in housing booms. The years leading up to the 2007-2009 world financial crisis saw record-breaking increases in home prices in some countries, notably the United States. According to the S&P, CoreLogic, and case Schiller Home Price Index, home prices in the United States nationwide rose 75% in real terms between 1997 and 2005, while the Consumer Price Index for Rent of Primary Residence corrected for Consumer Price Index Inflation rose only 8%. This boom in home prices far exceeded anything that could be attributed to increased unmet demand for housing services. This housing boom in the U.S. and other countries was a major factor in the world financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. Home prices fell dramatically and defaults on mortgage payments surged, plunging mortgage lenders into serious financial difficulty, a crisis that then spread to the rest of the financial sector and then the world. By 2012, in the aftermath of the crisis, real U.S. home prices fell To a level that was only 12% above that of 1997, before taking off again in a new boom that continues as of 2019, though the boom showed some signs of weakening and actual price declines in some U.S. cities. U.S. real home prices were up again 35% from 2012 to 2018, while real rents were only up 13%. The Rise of Flipping In trying to understand the housing boom leading up to the Great Recession of 2007-2009, to 2009, looking at the usual suspects such as interest rates, tax rates, or personal income is not very helpful. Instead, we should examine the shift to a more speculative narrative in which people thought of their homes as more speculative investments in land, a narrative that lenders welcomed. The seeds of the world financial crisis were planted decades earlier. A new meaning for the word flipper went viral in the U.S. in the 1970s and 1980s. At that time, a flipper was a sharp operator who buys a speculative investment and then flips it, selling less than a year after purchase to make a quick profit. The term then became popular during a different kind of housing boom, a condominium conversion boom. Owing to the very high inflation at that time, the tax advantages of home ownership over renting significantly increased because one could deduct the interest paid on a mortgage, which was very high because of inflation, from gross income, but could not deduct rent paid. Although high nominal mortgage interest rates deterred some from home ownership, for many others, the appreciate the expected appreciation in home value due to inflation offset the high interest rate. To meet the demand, developers began buying apartment buildings, evicting the renters of the individual apartments, and selling the apartments as condominiums. Renters, some of whom had lived in their apartment for many years, complained bitterly. To assuage them, the operators offered renters a contract to buy, at the time of conversion, their own apartment at a discounted price. The contract allowed them to resell the contract to people interested in buying. Many renters chose to flip their contract to speculators, who in turn flipped the contract again. Flippers attracted a lot of public attention, and many admired them as entrepreneurs who saw the opportunity quickly enough to cash in on it. By the 1990s, the term flipper was commonly used to describe people who bought shares in initial public offerings and resold them quickly. People often described the flippers in admiring terms, as people who understood that IPOs were typically underpriced on the offering date. When the share price popped up soon after the IPO, the flippers made a quick profit. A famous 1991 article by Jay Ritter showed that the initial IPO price pop tended to be followed by weak performance over subsequent years, so the optimal strategy appeared to be buying IPOs of the offering and then flipping them. Then in the early 2000s, during the enormous house price boom, the term flipper became attached to people who bought homes, fixed them up a little or a lot, and sold them quickly. Once again, admiring stories were told of their successes. While most people were not enthusiastic enough to actually flip houses, they may have imagined that they were engaged in long-term flipping, simply by purchasing a primary residence as a long-term investment. Thus, they engaged in the speculation narrative. Mansions and Modesty Exuberant real estate narratives did not stop with the 2007-2009 world financial crisis. In October of 2012, the Wall Street Journal launched a new section in the newspaper called Mansion. It was a response to a section in the Financial Times titled How to Spend It, but Mansion focused on housing. Notably, 2012 was the same year that home prices in the U.S. started rising sharply again after the 2007-2009 world financial crisis. It was also the year in which the police finally cleared the Occupy Wall Street movement, which had started a year earlier, from Zuccotti Park in New York City. The movement had been attracting much attention to the slogan, We Are the 99%, referring to the majority of the population who cannot live extravagantly, in a public assertion that these people matter. The mansion section seemed to scream that the top 1% mattered even more. It featured lush photo spreads of lavish homes and their pretentious occupants in a tone of gushing admiration. But the section also reported on anxieties about ostentation and about fears of public disgust at such extravagance. For example, a 2017 article in Mansion titled Tech CEOs Lie Low or Live Large discussed in detail the quandary that heads of technology companies face in deciding how big a home to buy. The article made it clear that the choice of a home is part of a delicate balancing of forces in a career optimization strategy. Hence, quote, Bay Area real estate agents say that their clients are becoming reluctant to buy fancy homes for fear of spooking, wary investors or distracting or of distracted or high living founders, end quote. The Donald Trump narrative and urban investors. Offsetting the modesty narrative was the Donald Trump narrative which led to his election as President of the United States in 2016. The Trump narrative proved that many people are not at all spooked by those who live large. On the contrary, as Trump openly states in his various co-authored books, it pays to let people know that one is rich. Here, the housing boom narrative is co-epidemic with the conspicuous consumption narrative discussed in Chapter 11. Vast numbers of people have taken interest in the Trump narrative, which encourages the idea that the display of wealth is an amazing, affirmative career strategy and the polar opposite of Occupy Wall Street idealism. The Trump narrative epidemic contributed to the upward trend in home prices in the U.S. starting after 2012. In 2005, during the housing boom that preceded the 2007-2009 financial crisis, web searches for the term housing bubble increased dramatically. The curve, shown in figure 15.1, resembles the Ebola epidemic. Something very contagious was clearly happening then. Some people tried to capitalize on the boom, not just by flipping homes, but also by promoting the boom. Enthusiasm for real estate investments infected a significant portion of the population. In 2005, Trump founded a business school, Trump University, saying, I can turn anyone into a successful real estate investor, including you. However, Trump's timing was bad. The Economist ran a cover story on June 18th of 2005 about the prospect of a bursting housing bubble. Trump University went out of business right after the world financial crisis in 2010 amidst cries of fraud and deceit. The housing market today. Since 2003, I have collaborated with my late colleague Carl Case, and now with Anna Kinsella Thompson to conduct an annual survey of recent home buyers in four U.S. cities. The survey is conducted under the auspices of the Yale School of Management. One of our questions is, in deciding to buy your property, did you think of the purchase as an investment? With answers ranging from 1. Not at all. 2. In part. To 3. It was a major consideration. The percentage who answered it was a major consideration peaked at 49% 49 in 2004, The percentage choosing that answer fell to 32% in 2010, just after the world financial crisis, and by 2016 it had risen to 42%. The survey also asks about the general level of conversation about the housing market. Specifically we ask, in conversations with friends and associates over the last few months, conditions in the housing market were discussed, circle the best one that applies. Options were 1. Frequently, 2. Sometimes, 3. Seldom, and 4. Never. The percentage who answered frequently reached a high of 43% in 2005, the end of the 1997-2005 boom. By 2012, the percentage choosing frequently reached a bottom of 28%, significantly lower than the number during the boom periods. The likely interpretation is that the contagion rate for housing market narratives had decreased, and that indeed, the decline in home prices could be viewed as the end of an epidemic. What were the narratives in spring of 2005? ProQuest finds 246 stories with the phrase housing bubble from March to May of 2005, before the cover stories in The Economist and other places. One of these stories included a statement from Alan Greenspan, who said that he saw a little froth and an unsustainable underlying pattern in the housing market. This statement was then compared with his irrational exuberant speech about the stock market in December of 1996. Between 2005 and 2007, there were 169 new stories, with both Greenspan and the word froth in them. It was a colorful, quotable story featuring an economic celebrity. It contributed to a colorful and quotable constellation of narratives, among them narratives with the power to change economic behavior and to bring on a financial crisis. We turn in the next chapter, from from real estate to the stock market, to chart another powerful narrative, putting the stock market at the center of the economy. We shall see some similarities between the narratives, both contagious in the context of perceived grand opportunities for investors, both intertwined with stories of investor greed and investor foolishness. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe and visit my channel for more exciting content.